Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see your faces.、Um, so glad to just have this time to reconnect and to talk about. Let's see, it's Unit Four, I guess, that we're on, moving towards the outward journey, and we've we've been on a journey, right? We've talked about starting points, the long journey, the inward journey, and now we're on the outward journey. So good to see you guys. Hi, Peter. Hi, friends. Hey, so I just, you know, I'm coming into today kind of frazzled. I just had like an hour at a pharmacy haggling. I don't know if that's ever happened to anybody else, but it's not my favorite thing.、Uh, so I'm a little flustered. But、uh, let's just start off coming into this podcast right now. How are you guys doing? I too am frazzled, and I wish I was at the pharmacy because I ran out of my anxiety medication. And、oh no! Exactly,、yeah. Daniel. That's like, why I was there. Like, That's why I was there for my kid. You know, I'm like, excuse me, this is very important. <laughs> so I'm I'm checking in with myself and just noticing of like, oh,、mm. it matters that I take those medications. I feel better. I'm able to move through the world. So I'm kind of there's that low level buzz. What? Tragedy is about to befall us if I don't finish my to-do list for the day. But I think、um, I was talking to Peter a little bit about. I'm also just feeling a little lonely in this Advent season.、Mm-hmm. This is the first season in many years I haven't worked at a church.、Um, even longer that I haven't even been in a church community.、Um, and this is I love Advent, but I it's different by yourself.、Um, I don't want to do Zoom church. I want to be together, and I want to listen to babies in cute outfits tell me about Jesus, and I want to take communion together and sing Silent Night off key. Like, so I just feel the longing for that community. I really miss it.、Um, I don't think you have to go to church to be a good Christian, so I do not feel like I'm losing my faith. I just miss community. I miss it for my kids too, like, and so I'm just I'm feeling it this season. I haven't had quite as much longing. Wow! I thank you so much for saying、I、that, Rihanna, because、recently. I was just asked yesterday on a different podcast, like, what I'm doing for Christmas this year for Advent, and I was like, nothing. I'm not listening to Christmas music. I haven't done Advent prayers with my kids. I have not had the energy to log on to Zoom church.、Um, So even you just saying that, I was like, "Oh, I'm not alone." Because I started to kick myself. Like, why am I not? I'm just not feeling it this year. I am sad. I thought last year was a sad Christmas. Well, this year is like I'm kind of sadder, and it feels hard to say out loud because for some people, life is going back to whatever normal is for them, and I I don't feel there yet at all. And so. I don't know. I just feel a little bit less lonely now that you said that. So thank you. And I also like I miss my kids dressing up as like little pigs at the Advent scene. You know, that was yeah. I miss all that. So thanks for just articulating that for us. What about you, Peter? Yeah, I, I was just kind of noticing the the disconnect I feel to the Advent season. This is the most.、Um, I don't. Maybe I don't know. I don't remember what I. Felt like in previous Advents very well, I suppose, but it does feel like a very un-Adventy Advent right now. We're still very much in that season、um, of uncertainty, and I wonder if that sort of was the not to spiritualize this, but、um, I wonder if that if this feels more authentic to the very first Advent when there was longing and there was waiting and uncertainty about what was to come.、Mm. 
whether or not there would be a Messiah that came. I love that so much because I think, I think we forget that not everyone knows the end of the story. Like when the story was happening in scripture, folks didn't know the end of the story. And so to think of like generations of longing, generations of waiting, probably figuring out the new normal and then the unprecedented times and then the new normal again. And then John the Baptist, like talking some crazy stuff. And like, so just all of these things that are happening. And so I wonder, and I don't even know what to do with it, right? Like, are we gonna be ready? Right, like, will we be ready when the breakthrough happens this time? Or will we be like, you know, our foremothers and forefathers that were like, mm, doesn't seem quite what I was expecting. <laughs> This doesn't look like what I was hoping for, what the image that I created in my mind. So I just wonder how to stay ready in the midst of the longing and the disappointment and all of these other things uh, that are happening in the world. How are you doing, Danielle? You told us a little bit about your morning already, but how are you coming into this time? Yeah, I'm definitely frazzled. Um, today is like the first day my younger child is going back to school. He got both of his COVID vaccines and um, he's in first grade. So he's never been to like a full day of school. Oh and my. so I'm very anxious. He was pretty anxious, but he's like super, super pumped, um, you know, to have recess and friends. So that's just, you know, just being a mom and, and thinking about some of these Advent themes. It's like, I don't even know how to feel today. I kind of feel like throwing up. You know, I'm like, I've been waiting for this day for a really long time, but it's full of anxiety and excitement and hope. But hope can be scary, you know, because you can be disappointed. And I I talk with my friend Kelly Nickendeha for the podcast that's going to be dropping um, in a few weeks about Advent. And she, you know, just finished writing an entire book about Advent that is really set in Palestine when... Jesus was born and just this underlying question of like, yeah, Jesus was born and it didn't change everything. You know, he was still executed by the state, you know, 33 years later. Like, so how can we have a fuller spirituality that allows for that hope and the promise and still allows us to be like, but bad stuff is still going to happen. You know, like Jesus was born and it didn't upend the social structures, but it gave us some hope that we can still live as if another world is possible, right? But it didn't it didn't all change overnight. So I'm just sitting with that. That's like a lot of tension, right? In in trying to hold that all. Um, which is maybe why I'm just not into listening to Christmas music <laughs> right now. <laughs> that doesn't really speak to the tensions, the songs that um, are blasting, so I so love Christmas music. And usually it would be just the like, I'm like when can I turn it on? I am ready. And I wonder, you know, maybe that actually is what I need, right? You know, those moments you're just like, I don't want to hear about baby Jesus. And I don't want to hear about, oh, come, oh, come Emmanuel, because I am cranky. And then you hear those, I heard, oh, come, oh, come Emmanuel. And I just was like, yes, please come. Like, I, like I felt it in a different way. And so I just wonder, what are those ways that we like shut ourselves off? And maybe because we're too tender, like, and I, and I'm, I'm real clear that I am tender. I'm like, I can easily triggered. Mm. <laughs> I 
need every Christmas song to have a trigger warning. <laughs> We're going to be using dark and light metaphor. We're only going to be talking about this. He. We're only going to have atonement, like aggressive atonement. The other one's like, no, 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 no. Um, and there is still balm mm. in there. Um, and so how to access the balm with such a weary, tender, tired spirit that is like, that needs it so badly. That is so good. You need to write a book about this or at least a booklet. <laughs> there should be. Can we? And then what do you do with it, right? Because it still does a thing, right? Like there's still something that happens. Like we said, the Bible's complicated. These songs are complicated. Church is complicated. So how do you sift through what is good and what is right? How do you notice what is hard, but not necessarily wrong? <laughs> Yeah, don't make me write a book, Peter. I can't handle it. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like do I have to add that to my to-do list? Was I just told? <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> but I would love to read it if you, at some point in the course of your life, in the many years ahead and decades ahead, if you choose to write such a thing, I would love to. I would love to read it. But, you know, it's true. I think it was Thanksgiving morning. We were sitting around our kitchen table or our dining table and one of our boys started playing Christmas music and my wife and I were both like, please stop. <laughs> please don't do that. <laughs> and I think, um, and I, I don't know, we weren't, you know, analyzing our motivations there, but I think there really is something to um, <clears throat> even getting into the spirit of what Advent has become for so many of us is a really hard thing because what we call Advent is not the same thing that um, other people would experience as Advent. But certainly, I think there's some detachment from the very first Advent and the original meaning or spirit of Advent. Not that I'm assuming that we can recover that somehow. I don't want to make that mistake either. Uh, but there is a sense of disconnect that needs to be acknowledged. Right. So one of the books that we're reading, our main text for this month, and I'm really excited because, uh, so to our listeners, Jeff Chu is going to be um, in conversation with Julie Rogers, and, and Jeff is the person who really put this book together. Um, and this is a book uh, by, written by Rachel Held Evans. Um, but I, it's, it really does feel like there was a community effort behind um, the, the, this book coming together after her death. And so it's a it's a beautiful book, and it wasn't intended to be in this season of Advent, um, because obviously you know we we put this book on the curriculum before long before uh, it came out. But the opening chapter is about the incarnation, and it really is a book that sort of throws you into the deep end of Advent reflections. So this is on page forty five, um, where she says, and this is the chapter where stone becomes flesh, and then she's talking about wholeheartedness and wholehearted faith and she says so perhaps wholeheartedness does not mean reductive thinking that clings to the idolatry of sharp contrasts between black and white but rather a recognition and acceptance of the reality of the vast and beautiful landscape of grace i have come to believe that wholehearted faith like all wholehearted living requires taking risks cultivating vulnerability and embracing uncertainty, both in our individual lives and in our communal life together. It demands that we admit all that we cannot know, and it encourages us to pursue it nonetheless. It's kind of like she's 
part of the conversation that we've been having, and she's just inserting her own perspective and wisdom. I love her so much. <clears throat> so I'll just put that out there, and I'm sure everybody has those moments. But I think I've talked before, like, the evangelicals are not my people. Um, and it's not the tradition. I can see the way that it's shown up in the traditions that I'm in, but it's not. I was not shaped by it. And so sometimes I struggle because the evangelicals that I know, I'm like, they're dope. They're like freedom fighters. They're like Rachel Hald Evans, who is asking really hard questions, who is holding her faith community accountable. And I'm like, heck yeah. Like evangelicals are great. Lisa Sharon Harper, like all of these people who refuse to be reduced and who are living this wholehearted face that is so messy and also I'm sure so tender so painful when you're doing that work of reflection but um yeah I just love I love when it's messy <laughs> I really do and I don't think that we give enough credence to the power of creator to handle our hardest questions to handle our wrestling and to handle our demands. How much do I love it when Jacob's like, I'm not leaving till you bless me. Let's tussle. Mm. He doesn't say until you give me the right answer, until you tell me how this is going to end, until you, you know, give me this and that. It's like, until you bless me, until you show yourself to be true. Um, so I'm grateful mm -hmm. that she names that messiness that um what's the word when things like bash up against each other like i feel like she's intentionally smashing things together and breaking them apart and doing all of that towards and i'll be real churchy towards the glory of god like the actual glory of god um so i think that's really beautiful yeah i i uh have really put off reading this book because, you know, I've met Rachel a few times and super impacted by her death. And um, just, you know, I bet there's other people out there who are like, I'm not ready, you know, to say goodbye to her writing. And I feel like I'm going to cry as I talk about this. But Peter, you know, you sent me, you're like, why don't you just read this one chapter, uh, chapter 13 about loving enemies. And so I did. And, you know, I'm just... I just loved it so much and uh, just love the people she quotes, loves, I can just see what she was reading and what she was thinking about. But I was really surprised at what stood out to me with loving the enemies chapter is I did sense a lot of this call for people who grew up like her and like me um, to, to kind of recognize that sometimes our inner critic and our inner voice, the voice of the very good religious person is an enemy that we need to mm. learn to love, um, to move forward in wholehearted faith. And that really stood out to me because that's exactly where I am as you, as I am trying to deconstruct toxic theology, as I'm trying to learn from other voices, um, I have really struggled with intense, uh, inner critic stuff that just mm. doesn't 
go away very easily, even though I, I try a host of things to quiet that voice. And it's fascinating. I'm also doing a little Advent reading um, through Reclaiming My Theology, their podcast, and Brandy Miller wrote a little Advent devotional. And then I just wanted to say today's devotional actually is kind of about Jesus meets people where they're at and invites them to be fully who they are, not to just become clones of religious folks. And so this is like the question at the end of today's reading. I just wanted to read it out. It says, what parts of yourself have you abandoned in the pursuit of religiosity and how might God want to interact with those places rather than simply cast them off? And that was like a really expansive invitation for me today. I I don't get to say I'm not that good little religious girl anymore i hate everything about her like she did it all wrong it's like Mm. no like but it's time to start to reclaim like who am i outside of a religious good girl uh you know who am i outside of these confines of what makes you orthodox within white evangelicalism and i think rachel Mm. was asking those questions for a really long time and um I don't know. I just felt some kinship there. So I know this is not going to resonate with everybody, but I'm, that's kind of where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love these reflections because um, I think it's bringing us, it's sort of bringing us face to face with this really uh, clarion call or this moment of clarity, which is kind of ironic because so much, there's so much embrace of mystery in what she's talking about and the ways that she's writing. But I just I I'm so struck by the fact that the the last word that we're receiving and maybe maybe I'm wrong maybe there are other writings that will come out from her letters and journals and things like that, but that this book is wholehearted faith, and it's so striking because I think the critics uh, of Rachel Held Evans throughout her life was that she was deconstructing, tearing things down, and she had no idea what kind of dangerous, slippery slopes she was on, and, and all those naysayers who were saying and who were critiquing her and, and really condemning her for destroying something, eradicating something that she wasn't going to be able to build back up, or that people weren't going to be able to salvage. And then we get this book, and it's about wholehearted faith. And I'm just so, I think that's a, such an amazing thing to think about is that um, her, her parting word to us, including her critics and including her enemies is, this has been my vision and my hope and what my life's work has been about. It's piecing together a more wholehearted faith and vision of what Christian faith might look like. And I just love and appreciate how both of you are expressing that. So thank you. I think it's interesting when you talk about her legacy, right? Um, so we have this book, but someone else bought the book for my kids. What is God like? Oh, I wept. I was like, this is the only church I'm going to need because I think that it points to what her ultimate heart was. I want God to get bigger. I want to be excited to share the good news with people and not be like, but not like that. And I'm really sorry about our other people in this and don't do this, but don't listen. Like, but just to be like, let's wonder together. Let's ask holy questions. And guess what? People have been asking what God is like for millennia. You're not the first person to ask those questions. And as I'm reading that to my kids, I'm like, good, let's go. That's where we start. Everybody wants to ask these questions. So I think to have these as her legacy projects, 
are actually really powerful to, to get to the heart of what things are. Um, and Daniel, I'll let you respond to that. And then I have an idea about deconstruction and reconstruction, but I, I can wait for a minute. I don't have anything to respond. I'm just like totally tearing up because uh, not just what is God like, but all of Matthew Paul Turner's books for kids, I read them to my kids and I end up, you know, crying each time, every time to the point where my kids are like, I don't want to read that book <laughs> because mommy, you know, starts crying. So it's just, yeah, they're very powerful, very powerful books. And I think that's a question that I don't know what, I don't know. I did it somewhere how do we give the good news, right? Like, I do think that there is still a longing, like we feel it, like, no, I, I think it's good. I do think that Jesus moving in the world is so good. I think the hope of resurrection, oh my gosh, absolutely. And it's been packaged just like as trash for so long. How do you repackage? How do you re-gift it? How do you do that? Um, but as I was thinking about this whole movement on deconstruction, reconstruction. I don't know. I went back to the Bible and the words of Jesus, which I just don't think, like, I'm just like, what are people doing? The Beatitudes. Do you know how those start? Jesus goes, you have heard it said, but now. Like Jesus spends a really long time letting people know, yes, you have heard something and it was really important and it served a purpose and there's more. And so if it was good enough for Jesus, I want to be like Jesus and following the way of deconstruction and reconstruction and asking hard questions and being available to the crazy, uncertain, like sometimes super painful, moving of God in the world towards redemption for all things. Mm. Oh, that's so powerful. It just makes me think like this idea that we should never deconstruct and we can get to a point where we never have to deconstruct again seems like a tenet of white supremacy, right? Because then you mm. would never, ever, ever upend the hierarchy, the social order, the status quo. Mm. And so... Thank you so much, Rihanna, for just pointing out, like, I, I still have this within me. This is like the religiosity mm -hmm. that I, I saw in Rachel, too. Honestly, it's like we still really hope we're going to get to a place where we know it all and we never have to try again. And I think in her later writings, she was saying, no, mm -hmm. this is not it. That's not what wholehearted faith is. And so I continually have to recognize, am I just hoping for a day where mm -hmm. I get to be right and I don't ever have to deconstruct anything ever again. Is that God's dream for me in the world? I don't think so. I think you're showing what Jesus tried to tell us, you know, is that this is a lifelong journey with a loving creator. And yeah. And I love that you mentioned that. I'm just going to say one more thing, because I think she also talked about the new, like, if I had to pick, I would probably pick straight up, MAGA evangelicals over progressive evangelicals. Sorry. And here's why. <laughs> I know where those folks stand. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't try to put a bow on all of their stuff. They are about upholding white supremacy. 
And I think these new waves of folks who, you know, the new term of exvangelical, or I'm on this, they have like right phrases, but there is still this undergirding, I'm right and they're wrong. I have arrived. And if everybody would just get on the same train with me, we would get there. And it is still, I think, like you said, Danielle, about upholding white supremacy. It just looks really different. And so I'm glad that she named that as well. She's like, you got the conservatives on one side. And then you have these new folks who are like, I thought it, so I believe it, right? Like, it's only about me, or I heard it on this great podcast, or I heard it on NPR, or I heard that there is always kind of pushing out the certainty and it's about safety and it's about fear. It's about all these things. But I, I wish that we would just talk more about that weird problematic certainty of kind of progressive Christians that operates in very similar ways to the people that they do not want to be aligned with. Amen. Well, I think what you just said is a is a great introduction to, and maybe not just an introduction, maybe it's a great summation of one of our readings, uh, which is James Cone's, it's a chapter out of James Cone's um, book, The Cross and the Lynching, Lynching Tree. But it's an early chapter where Cone goes after Reinhold Niebuhr as a progressive, as a white progressive, liberal, mainline figure, a heroic figure for so, so much of American Christendom. Um, and goes after uh, Niebuhr and critiques, like, how is it that this amazing, enlightened theologian completely missed the significance of the lynching and the white supremacy that was all around him in his lifetime and didn't make that connection? So thank you for that, um, Rihanna. I think we need to, to really, really sit with that and think about that for a long time. Um, and I also love that both of you were pointing us back to Jesus the Bible and the idea that deconstruction is deeply a part, a deeply ingrained part of the spirituality that Jesus uh, inaugurates uh, in the New Testament. For uh, our audience, we're having a conversation on the platform this week about deconstruction. I had no idea when I posted that yesterday that I guess deconstruction has been sort of, I don't, I don't even know what the right term is, um, is trending in Twitterverse, right? Right now, from as of a couple of days ago. And I guess um, there are folks who are saying that deconstruction is dangerous, is unbiblical. And I just love that as, as both of you are talking, you're pointing out the spirit of growing and evolving that Rachel Held Evans also writes about. Um, but I was just reflecting on this, that, and I learned this from two great preachers, uh, I think it was last year, it was um, D.L. Mayfield and Kelly Nicondea preaching on John chapter 2 and talking about how Jesus deconstructs, he advocated the deconstruction of the temple and the, the deconstruction of the temple religion of the Sadducees. And I was thinking about this. Jesus goes on in John chapter 3 where he advocates to Nicodemus the deconstruction of his non-temple temple religion, right? Of the oral tradition, the ways in which the Pharisees were beholden to um this way of thinking about the law. And then in John chapter 4, where Jesus advocates to the woman at the well, he advocates deconstruction to her as well. Because he didn't quite, a lot of people think that Jesus advocated or was talking about the eradication of the significance of places like Jerusalem and Samaria. But he wasn't saying that those places don't matter. He was saying every place matters. He was rehabilitating 
the significance of every person's place. And for her, he was deconstructing her religion, right? Is it Jerusalem or this mountain? And Jesus is saying, is saying every place, in every place people will worship God and pray to God. And it's just part and parcel of what Jesus did in his ministry. He was always saying, you have heard, but I say unto you, deconstructing. Uh, so it's just mystifying to me why it is that it's, see it's seen as so dangerous and so unbiblical. Yeah, I think right now it is trending um, uh, on Twitter and everything. Like Matt Chandler, uh, you know, there's like a clip floating around about him saying like people just are deconstructing because it's sexy. So that's just funny to think about. Um, that's why we're all doing this is because we want to be sexy people. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's very personal to me because my former pastor published a piece a few weeks ago at the Gospel Coalition about the four reasons why people deconstruct. And the last two were, uh, you know, people just really want to sin. And then the fourth reason why is uh, for street cred. You know, you just want street cred and that's why you are deconstructing everything. And, and I had been told basically the same things, right? When I brought up real questions about inclusion in our church and was told, I get it. You want an easy gospel. You're free to leave. And so for me, um, the reason it's trending is because it's a, it's a gaslighting technique, right? To, to get people to stop asking so many questions and then to sow the seeds of distrust um, in people who have left because their questions were not able to be heard. So it's a real technique and a real tactic. Um, and it's funny because, you know, my Twitter feed is just making fun of it. But I also want to say, like, there's some real, you know, wounds and hurt uh, for those of us who have ha heard those things from our communities, even our parents, you know, all that stuff. Um, you just want an easy gospel. You're just doing this for street cred, you know, I, I hate using this word, but right. It's just another iteration of like, oh, you're just trying to be woke. Um, so just just be on the lookout uh, if if those things are coming your way. It's it's a technique, a silencing technique. And uh, mm -hmm. we can we can combat it together, I guess. I don't know. I, there's no easy solution to that. But yeah, I think it's also giving the space for it. I love that you talked about that. She says the wholehearted faith is so vulnerable. And I think I heard all of us name like a little bit of tenderness, right? Like I, I can't go there right now. So I think also for folks who are just like, I can't break apart all the things. Okay, that's okay. Mm -hmm. You don't have to right now, <laughs> right? Just go hang out with Jesus. And so I think that there's something to just, how do we meet people in their tenderness? And I think the difference that I see, the way that Jesus was deconstructing, I don't know, equalizing power. Jesus was saying to the people who thought they had all the answers, you are really wrong. And your wrong is causing harm to people that I love mm -hmm. and who will be the beneficiaries of the kingdom of God. So, so I think we get to the so what, right? And then to the Samaritan woman, he goes, hey, you're also wrong. And your wrong is hurting yourself and other people who will be the beneficiaries of the kingdom of God. And so if it is just about like, you know, my husband is spiritual but not religious. And every now and then he knows not to. He tries to give me like a gotcha Bible question. And sometimes and I'm just like, I think he did it the other day. He's like, well, was that Ruth's real name? And I was like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> and I just had to like, it was like, I was like, so tell me how whatever her name was 
is going to impact your understanding of who God is and who I understand God to be. And he just kind of was like, sorry. So sometimes there are the gotcha questions, right? That we're just trying to like, actually just trying to hurt someone else. I'm trying to disprove someone else versus are we asking the questions that are expanding who is actively participating in the kingdom of God? It's, it's about the so what, um, I think, that we need to keep going back to. So what? Why? Why? And I just want to point out that that conversation, we talked about John 2, 3, and 4, but that conversation with the woman is one of the most exhilarating, lively, deeply probing, sophisticated conversations in all of the New Testament that Jesus ever had. It might be his best conversation um, where there's so much that comes out. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but how cool is it that ha- that happens for Jesus with an unnamed woman, right? Mm. And I think it maps back to kind of chapter 13 mm. and the power of story. When I think about the encounters with Jesus, I go back and forth <laughs> because sometimes Jesus is like, I want to hear your story. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, can you imagine like Jesus being like, I just want to listen to you. Just tell me. Like, it feels like the most beautiful thing ever. And then I have issues when Jesus is like, tell your story to everyone. And I'm like, no, Jesus. Like, don't put somebody on blast. Don't do those things. But I think, and when I struggle with it, I still struggle with it. But Jesus goes, no, your story is that important for everyone to hear, right? Everyone needs to be changed by the stories that are happening. And so for Jesus to sit with a woman that nobody else was listening to, again, why aren't we just like Jesus? Go find people that no one else is listening to and experience the presence of God and notice the new things and feel the expansiveness. Um, that can happen with your faith. Oh my gosh. I just feel like I could listen to you guys talk about this interaction between Jesus and this woman for forever. And I also just want to say, it's really helpful me coming into this conversation being like, I don't know what little white baby Jesus means to me. I don't think it means anything to me this year and that's fine. So it's been really cool just listening to both of you talk to be like, Jesus talking to this woman, like, I can I can hang with that image in my head today and that's really powerful. So thank you both. That was this was just really great to hear. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about. And I just want to point out to our listeners that we're also reading we have a multiplicity of texts and voices that we're learning from um, this month. And so Mihi Kim Court's Blessed Are the Promiscuous is I think a fantastic read for this particular topic and in this season, and also Randy Woodley's mission and the cultural other, which I think is going to expand our thinking and conversation around what Christian ministry and witness uh, might look like in our world. But for our our closing, I have one more. There was so much more that we wanted to talk about, but I've got this one excerpt again from page 48 of the book. I want to just read it. Maybe it can serve as a blessing as we go. Um, and then if you have any other closing final thoughts, reflections, uh, that would be wonderful. My desire is that you face all your questions, all your conundrums, 
all your contradictions boldly. I cannot guarantee you will retain the faith you inherited. I know that mine is not exactly the faith that my parents helped to instill in me. And honestly, a, a static faith or an unchanging one isn't and shouldn't be my prayer for you. Because as we learn and as we grow, faith should evolve. In all candor, I can't promise that you'll hold on to any faith at all. But that's the risk we take when we decide to stop pretending, when we agree to go all in without any guarantee that all will stay the same. Such a challenging word, but I think such an encouraging word for these uncertain times. Yeah, I think I'll just say, um, you know, I am somebody who who is feeling the risk of what would it be like to take the mask, you know, of religiosity off fully. And so it's okay if you're there, if you're sitting in that tension, there's a lot of other people with you. And one of my, you know, favorite uh, writers and people on Twitter right now is Jessica Kantrowitz. And every day she just tweets out the same thing. She says, you are not alone and this will not last forever. And I just need someone in my life saying that every day. So I thought I'd just share that here. I think this is, <clears throat> I think it is a word to like people of color, people who are marginalized. We actually know how to ask the questions and we have recognized the ways that the church has not honored us. And we actually don't have to be the teachers of everyone. We can spend a season being real tender and being real tired and being like, I don't know, baby Jesus who needed people to feed him and to tend to him and to care for him. Sometimes we gotta be baby Jesus. Okay, that's like complicated, but anyway. Um, and I think, so I, I think I want for those folks who have made those decisions, who have been asking hard questions for a while and trying to figure out what to do with that. Maybe don't look back. Maybe think about what it looks like to look forward to new folks who actually do need to hear the gospel, who need to hear good news, and who need it only in the way that you can offer because of your questions, because of your experience, because of your tenderness, because of your longing. And they're ready um, to hear it from you. Oh, wow. Such um, words of encouragement and words of challenge. It's been wonderful sitting in this moment of uncertainty as we look to what lies ahead. Um, thank you for thank you for being present for me and for our community. 